From EAB, I'm Matt Pellish, and this is Office Hours, a weekly podcast from the leader in research, technology, and services for education. On this week's episode, we're welcoming back some familiar voices, people you've heard a lot on the podcast before, the EAB research duo of Michael Fisher and Caitlin Maloney. They have been taking the lead on a ton of our COVID-19 related research, and today we'll dive into something everybody's been confronting, the challenges of communication in this crisis. They've seen things like how speed and transparency can be critical, but also the way that channels like Instagram, Twitter, email, websites, all the things you have to use to reach a truly multi-generational organization like a college or university. We've learned a lot seeing schools try to communicate the move to fully remote instruction when they announced they were closing campus and had to send everybody home. But today we're going to hear Michael and Caitlin's take on the next big communication moments leaders need to be preparing for. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to Office Hours from EAB. Hi, everyone. This is Caitlin Maloney from EAB coming at you again from my kitchen table in downtown DC, my makeshift podcast studio. Uh, Today, I'm joined by my colleague, Michael Fisher. Associate Director of Research at EAB and uh, new time dad to a beautiful, what, almost two-month-old son, Matthew? That's right. That's right. If you hear some crying in the background, it is probably him. My apologies in advance. (laughs) Well, Michael is going to join me today to talk about communicating effectively through a crisis. Uh, We'll keep our conversation uh, mostly specific to the coronavirus outbreak today, but I'm sure that Michael has a lot of lessons learned from working with higher ed institutions on communication best practices across the past few years. So I'm eager to hear what you have to say and how some of our existing prior research can help support members through this critical time. Absolutely. I'm glad to get into it. Now, Michael, I know that you have been on the front lines of our coronavirus response uh, since the very beginning. And one of the first things that you did was help stand up our uh, central coronavirus response page that includes a lot of policy documents and communication statements that institutions have made in light of the crisis. Thinking about what you've seen across the past few weeks, what have schools done pretty well uh, responding or communicating the crisis? And what are some areas of weakness you've seen in how schools are communicating? This crisis came about so quickly and escalated so rapidly. It's impressive that institutions were able to even get communication web pages off the ground as rapidly as they did. A lot of it was making decisions on the fly. And so website URLs were changing and pages were undergoing rapid structural adjustments to meet the new needs as things evolved on campus. So credit to partner institutions, to universities and colleges across the United States and Canada, United Kingdom, that they were just keeping up with things as so many institutions had to move to remote instruction and to closing off their campuses, asking students not to return. I generally think that where universities were strongest was in that transparency around acknowledging that they didn't know all the answers and that so much was changing rapidly and that a decision made today might have to change tomorrow because of new information that came from their state or federal government or by decisions that were being made. The transparency that was put on display, the recognition that we're doing our best and we're keeping you all as safe and informed as possible, I think went a long way in alleviating concerns on campus that 
students were being kept in the dark, that stakeholders weren't being informed, that staff weren't aware of the direction that the institution was going. So that was one of the main strong points. Another one was the creation of these FAQ pages. Almost every institution eventually decided to create one. And these were places where questions that institutions were hearing commonly, they were putting up the information regarding. And they, the, the best institutions here were categorizing them based on topics. So information related to health, information related to supporting my young children if I'm a remote worker, information related to accessing basic needs like housing, food, and internet if I'm a student who has to be remote, creating a central uh, place where all that information was available and easily searchable and easily downloadable. Um, I think it was a, a huge win, and a lot of institutions learned from each other in building up those types of resources. Mm-hmm. In terms of areas that were maybe not as um, successful with communication, in the early days, there wasn't a lot of work in social media. Uh, there wasn't a lot of attempts to try to get the message out to people through Facebook, through Twitter, through other social media mechanisms, even through text um, and other types of platforms that students in particular are more commonly likely to use. Facebook and Twitter messages tend to be uh, a link to a statement from the institution as opposed to actually previewing and putting forward that information rapidly so a student scrolling through Twitter or a staff member looking at a Facebook page could quickly gain access to that information and make informed decisions. So institutions have been a little shaky in trying to develop that social media policy. And even today, we still see kind of a mixed messaging where announcements about the coronavirus or changes to the campus status are being intermingled with what almost seems to be leftover policies or quote-unquote ads that the university had planned to promote an event that might be canceled now or a type of course that no longer can take place on campus. I'm glad you brought up social media. I think higher ed institutions are in a unique position uh, in that they are a truly multi-generational communities. You know, I've, I've worked with some executive leaders who swear by Facebook, swear by email, but at the same time wonder if their students ever check their email. Do Gen Zers only communicate via TikTok anymore? Are you saying you've seen the most successful institution have deployed a multi-medium approach and incorporated social media on top of these FAQ pages, on top of email? Yeah, but most institutions have that central location, uh, their COVID-19 resource or information center. And that's the core. You always want to direct people back to that as the single source of truth. But in terms of distributing that information to the population, it's not only beneficial in terms of the different generations and recognizing that your faculty, your staff, um, your vendors, your contractors, your students all are engaging in different ways of, of interacting with media and with communication material, but also recognizing that it's important to reiterate information and that if a student just sees a piece of information once, especially something that's on a very highly important topic for them. Uh, this was especially true around the, the time where institutions were making the decision to close off their campus, ask students not to return from spring break or limiting them from returning to spring break to small groups that were just going to uh, pack up their dormitories or the residence halls and then return to their homes. There were a lot of contentious pushback from students around, I don't have a home to return to. Mm -hmm. Um, This information wasn't made clear to me. Where am I going to get food? Where am I going to get access to the materials I need for remote instruction? And one email message may lead to more questions than there are answers. 
but instead reiterating that communication over time, putting something on social media so students um, who missed something in the first time that they skimmed that email or saw it on the website, that they're reiterated or clarified or informed about a slight difference in the policy or a change in their misunderstanding really helps ensure that everybody's on the same page and everyone feels confident that they know what the institution is doing. It's the old adage, right? You can't over-communicate during a crisis. I wonder though, are there limits to that? Like what's the risk that you would go too far um, that your audience starts to tune you out if you're communicating too much? Have you seen that or what are your thoughts on that? We haven't seen that per se, um, especially during the actual sort of high point of the crisis, that period from about March 6th or so when the University of Washington, along with a couple other Seattle area universities, decided to cancel in-person classes to about March 15th or so when the vast majority of institutions had made that shift and made important decisions. So much was happening, so much was changing that having every couple hours an update to your information center was considered important because things had so rapidly changed. In this period now and continuing forward where institutions um, are having to make decisions, but maybe not as at quick pace, new information is coming out on a fairly day-to-day basis, but it's not so rapidly changing the nature of the crisis or the status of campus there's still a value of, of updating people, even just to let them know that things are progressing the way that we foresaw them or that the way that we're moving forward um, is working. And that's a confidence booster. Generally, we see institutions updating their uh, resource center or central hub pages about uh, at least every three days or so. But sometimes that communication can be different than just an announcement about a new policy. It might be a video from the university's chancellor, president, or provost um, giving some confidence, uh, an inspirational speech, or showcasing a part of campus that students can no longer go to, no longer see, but um, especially when spring was coming up, highlighting the flowers on campus and the trees Mm -hmm. and giving students a connection back to campus in that way. Or it might be something funny or clever, a faculty member who's made a song or has, you know, is create a clever way of doing a laboratory remotely, profiling that information to highlight the ways in which faculty and staff are innovating um, on their online and remote instruction um, that gives people confidence that education is still taking place on campus. So updates are important, but they don't always have to be so weighty and meaty that we saw during the core of the crisis. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's a great point. I've been watching my alma mater's uh, social media page and their Facebook updates, and I've been really impressed with the way that they've been highlighting st- uh, stories from particularly frontline facilities staff as they're cleaning out dorm rooms, as they're uh, making sure that campus is safe for the faculty and staff that are still there. Um, it's really helped me feel connected, but also I think give these staff some much needed credit where mm-hmm. uh, their work is so important, but they're, they're not often the ones in the, the spotlight. No, absolutely. To that point, we've been talking at a pretty high level about uh, communication best practices. I said, you've seen a lot, you've read a lot of communication statements, probably perused a lot of social media content. Do any stories or examples come to mind? I, I don't want you to name names, but schools that stories of schools doing a particularly good job communicating to faculty and students on next steps. Uh, if you have any horror stories, again, not naming names, I think those would be helpful too. <laughs> There are a couple that come to mind of of a variety of nature. Uh, There was one institution that 
decided to um, send out a an email regarding the shift to remote instruction. And that was considered to be a very contentious issue on campus. Um, re- doing all sort of online virtual education had been an area of concern. There was the pushback, potential pushback from faculty and even from students around this shift here. And so while not uh, wanting to sort of undermine those concerns, the uh, provost really wanted to highlight the opportunities that were going to be made available to it. So they actually made that announcement in the form of like the Zoom platform that they were all going to be moving to, to just sort of highlight how easy it was to use and um, how the kind of features and opportunities that would be available because of this instruction as part of the video announcing that the shift was going to take place. So it was kind of modeling a little bit of what students and faculty could have to expect, um, and that seemed to benefit significantly. The remote, there are probably two major crisis points um, that led to the sort of the most issues with communication on campus. One was the shift to remote instruction, and one was the decision to send students home. So with that shift to remote instruction, we heard from a couple of, of campuses that they really leveraged these sort of uh, role models or ambassadors to go out into the community, especially to older staff, older faculty who maybe wouldn't be as comfortable with the remote instruction and try to give them the talking points and the pep talk early on so that they could present a unified front when the shift took place. And so that seemed to to really benefit um, getting sort of everybody on the same page, identifying who were the champions, who were the cheerleaders in each department and who might need a little bit of extra support in that shift and making sure that sort of all those resources were available and those communication lines were opened. With the shift to sort of closing off campus to students and sending students home, um, the messaging around trying to ensure that in particular first-generation students who were most at risk for not having the kind of resources available in their own communities to continue with remote instruction or may have had concerns around uh, housing insecurity, food insecurity. Uh, There was a lot of agita around that. And so the announcements for those, we heard a couple institutions paired those with appeals for alumni to donate to student emergency funds to provide resources that would allow the institution to quickly buy additional technology or, or keep food banks open or ensure that they could maintain some housing on campus that was secure and safe and healthy for both staff and students, but would allow the students most at risk to remain on campus. Uh, Pairing those announcements together presented the challenge of having to close off campus, but also a solution that the institution was already working on. So it was a nice one-two punch that I think softened the blow for what was a very disappointing announcement for many students. Yeah, that's a great idea. I know a lot of these decisions that you're talking about communicating were not just made with the safety of campus in mind, but invoked so many uh, emotional heartstrings, especially for students as some of their big uh, academic and social milestones were canceled. Shifting gears a little bit. So this isn't the first crisis that higher ed institutions have faced. Uh, It's certainly the largest in in recent memory, but institutions have dealt with um, campus safety incidents, um, 
natural disasters, weather-related incidents, student protests, a a lot of conflict and crisis in the the past few years. I'm curious, do many schools or most schools have crisis communication plans in place these days, given the the political and uh, environment that we've been living through in the past few years? And if so, have they helped institutions respond to the current outbreak? I don't think there's any question that the last decade or so, given political situations on campus or concerns with natural disasters and other risks that have taken place, have led institutions to invest in campus communication resources. Um, And including that is some emergency preparedness and response plans. I don't necessarily think based on the conversations that we've had and the surveys that we've done of partners that people were really ready for this kind of a crisis. A crisis not only that was sort of an infectious disease in nature, this was not something that was on people's radar as much, but also one that was so fundamentally wide sweeping. Most campuses instead were prepared for a crisis that would affect maybe their campus and some of their neighbors, a localized hurricane, earthquake, fire. Um, And those institutions that have had to deal with natural disasters recently out in California with their fires, near the the Gulf of Mexico with hurricanes and along this sort of southeastern shoreboard, they tend to have the most robust response plans and communication resources in place. But what happened here that made it so different is everything was happening across the country and frankly around the world simultaneously. And I think that put universities in a weird position on the communication front. And this has been backed up a little bit by surveys, but there's basically no institution that is as trusted in this crisis as universities. They're they're basically tied in terms of trust with state and local governments, more so than the media, more so than the federal government, more so than even the CDC or the World Health Organization. Uh, The surveyed folks say that they trust institutions, higher education institutions, to provide accurate information. And so in particular for stakeholders, for students, staff, and faculty, these resource centers, these places where they were putting out updates and trying to inform the community, they were not only doing a service for them on behalf of the institution, but doing a service for them on behalf of the community, on behalf of society, keeping them informed. And so I think that that was an additional sort of challenge, a burden that was placed on them, but a lot of communication staff at these institutions really rose to the occasion and are continuing to do so with regular updates about known cases in the area, testing that's taking place, access to resources that the state or local governments are providing, providing that advice that maybe goes above and beyond what we'd expect um, is required for a higher education institution to inform its campus constituents. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great point about just the number of stakeholders that institutions have to consider in their communications plans and just how difficult these sort of crisis communications can be because your decisions can be interpreted ways by different stakeholders. Community members, alumni might be thrilled with your decision to open up your residence halls for COVID patients or for frontline responders. That same decision might be met with ire by parents and students who might fear lingering safety or health risks once those dorms reopen. Yeah, in fact, I think it was Mitch Daniels, the the president out at Purdue University, who, in responding to students saying, uh, this disease doesn't affect us, why do we need to be sent home? Why do we need to close off campus here? He had to go out there and frankly communicate that, sure, the risk to young people is fairly low, but the risk to professors and to faculty and to staff on campus who tend to be older in in those high-risk categories 
is so significant. And so we have to think about a campus as a holistic community. It's not just about those traditional sort of segments and silos on campus. We all have to respond to this proactively as a community, as a whole. And so he was having to sort of say different talking points to students than necessarily to uh, those faculty and staff who are well aware of what the urgency driver behind that change in policy was. It's mm. a great example. So we've been talking about how institutional leaders should be communicating policy decisions out to the campus community, uh, but they don't know what they don't know. Have you seen any good examples or have advice for institutions about how they should be asking faculty and students to communicate with them about the challenges they're facing right now and where they could use the institution's assistance? Yeah, most institutions have created what you might call hotlines, either email inboxes or forms that are on the, uh, the website that ask for information to be taken in. And they may include specific ones for some of the most hot button issues, those that are most pressing. Things around mental health and student basic needs are two of the, the, the most important where you may want a more dedicated line uh, to mental health services or to um, some of your student affairs staff to address those concerns around uh, mental health and access to basic needs. But we've also seen institutions leverage some of their communication resources to try to get at some areas where they would like feedback or crowdsourcing of solutions for problems that they're facing. One that we've seen recently come up is around commencement. Uh, given the current trajectories, most institutions are probably going to have to either postpone their commencements or move them to a virtual environment. And so they're having to think about what are ways that we can celebrate the class of 2020, even though we're not going to be able to present to them the traditional walk across the stage and gathering of people on our campus. And so while they have ideas, they're also asking those students and alumni to think of what was most important. What are those traditions that are core to the experience of graduating from our institution? And how can we reframe those in an online environment? And so they're trying to compile all those ideas together, spitball them off each other, and then be able to present them back to the students and alumni and other stakeholders and say, this is your commencement, the commencement that you developed with us to celebrate your class graduating even in the midst of these times. So it seems like a small thing, but it can really magnify the impact of some of these decisions when students and staff feel like they had an input in the decision-making process. Mm, yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, I could certainly see how uh, it would be harder for students or staff to criticize some of the decisions they were made if they had a voice in uh, making those decisions. It's a great way, I'm sure, a great idea to engage students and community members. We've been getting a lot of questions about that as folks are remote and all over the country. How do you keep folks engaged? Um, so a great way to, to get some of their feedback on some of the decisions that you're making and continue that communication and engagement stream at the same time. And the fact that so much of the country is under uh, social isolation or stay in place orders and don't, don't have those normal means of interaction, being able to hang out with extended family or friends or coworkers, I think has given a lot more runway for institutions to leverage communication tactics, to encourage more of this networking and exchanging of information virtually uh, because there's a hunger for it. People want to communicate. We're social animals. People have a desire to engage with one another. 
And so when in a traditional crisis or a traditional time of uncertainty, people might rely on their local neighborhoods uh, or their local institutions in the area for that social outlook. Um, higher education institutions have actually tended to step up here and create these virtual networks for people to be able to engage whether they're a student, a staff member working remotely, or an interested alumni who wants to ensure that the institution gets through this. Michael, you've mentioned a ton of really big, difficult decisions that institutions have been making and communicating those decisions out to their constituencies, whether it's the decision to close campus, to shift to remote education. Um, now we're seeing more and more canceled or postponed or virtual commencement decisions, getting into decisions that about um, summer athletics, summer programs. What, from your perspective, are some of the next big communication moments that leaders need to be preparing for right now? There are a couple, and they're in different time frames. In the short run, probably the biggest communication point that institutions should be prepared for is when a known member of the community gets diagnosed with the coronavirus. Mm -hmm. And in particular, when the first member of their community passes away from it. Mm -hmm. um, it'll probably be a member of the staff or faculty, and some institutions have already had to deal with this, but what's the plan in place for communicating that out to the community? Um, for celebrating that person's life, for acknowledging the work that they did, for creating a way for the community to grieve, mourn, memorialize, um, and talk to one another about the loss of that person. Um, given what we're hearing from the estimates and modeling to take place, certainly almost every institution will probably have at least somebody on their campus come down with the virus, um, and that will need to be communicated, but many others may also have to deal with the passing of somebody in the community. So that'll be an important thing for institutions to be prepared for and ready for so that they um, appear um, not only capable, but also very emotionally present and available during that time. In the mid run, the big communication decision that will have to take place is the question about whether campus will reopen in the fall. Um, there's a lot of concern out there right now in the sort of COVID-19 community and discussions around uh, medical staff, public health experts, and government officials around the potential of a second wave. Even if this first crisis is dealt with, will the return of cold weather in the fall lead to a new uptick in the amount of the virus outbreaks that are taking place, the number of cases? And given that a vaccine is probably at least a year away, do we put students potentially back at risk by bringing them back to campus in the fall? But if we make that decision to bring them back, if we don't bring them back in the fall, we're going to have to maintain these online uh, and remote instruction capabilities. Students may feel even more strenuous connections to campus. So as we're making that decision, how do we communicate our results to the student body, to faculty, to staff, to stakeholders, let them know the process, the risks that we're taking into account, um, and, make this, and make that decision seem like the best course of action given the limited information that we had. And then finally, in the long run, there's once this crisis subsides, there's going to be some communication around the decision to move, to sort of reduce some of the policies that were put in place. The big one that, that comes to mind for me are the travel bans and the decision about when it's okay to allow faculty and students for uh, study abroad, for research grants to go back out there, even as travel bans that are put in place by governments come down. So how do we communicate the decision and that, how that might disrupt the research opportunities for both uh, students 
and faculty in a way that's sensitive to their needs, but also takes into account the risks that are out there. Yeah, that's a lot of really big and difficult decisions. And I'm sure that the communication tactics, the messages that schools put out, it's going to vary by the decisions they make in the circumstance. But generally speaking, based on what you've seen so far, do you have any lessons learned, any advice about the what sort of tone that schools should or leaders should be striking in these messages and um, what sorts of details they should be sure to include? Tone-wise the most successful have been those that have um, confidence, so commitment that they are making a decision and they're going to go through with it, but also sort of um, approachability, recognition that this is a crisis, that no decision is going to be 100% right all the time. So finding that balance there. And this is where I actually think that uh, presidents who've been able to leverage video um, in some of their announcements have really gained a lot. Being able to put on the persona and showcase both an aura of you know, authority and making decisions that will benefit the community, but also, again, approachability and, in a sense, almost a vulnerability in a way of being still able to be um, recognized as, as dealing with this crisis themselves and, and being personally affected by the disruption that's taking place. Um, more details are better, as, as especially as those details are put forward. So institutions that are tracking the number of cases that are in the in that are known in the community in the campus, um, a number of people who've recovered. Some of them have trackers on the top of their sites or announcements, flags about what are the local governments or state governments stay-at-home or social isolation orders. Um, getting that information right up front and center so that it's very clear and obvious um, is a real advantage for those uh, as well. And then finally, in terms of like component pieces, there I again. It, it seems like a very simple thing, but the horror stories, and there have been a couple, not a ton in the case of uh, universities dealing with this, have tend to be tone deaf probably because of a lack of proofreading or just having somebody else read through this communication. One institution got in trouble because they, they elided the word not from the announcement. And so it said the exact opposite thing that they mm. were intending to say. Another one included maybe accidentally a video that came across as sort of joking and too unserious for the nature of the announcements that were being made. And those are things that probably would have easily been resolved if somebody else in the communications department or somebody else on, on campus had a chance to just review that communication with a clean slate and say, oh, I understand what's being said and my emotional effect is good. So this is probably worthwhile for sending out to the community. Mm. I know listeners couldn't see my cringing face just there during my horror stories. I think that's a great place for us to end though. Thank you so much, Michael. Um, I'll be curious to see if we get any outreach from higher ed leaders considering communicating to their communities through podcasts after this. So uh, stay tuned for that. But thanks for being with us today. Oh, thank you, Caitlin. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. Join us next week on Office Hours when I welcome EAB's Chief Information Security Officer, Brian Markham. He's going to talk to us about his days managing university IT security, but also the risks when your entire workforce and your whole student body suddenly go remote. Until then, I'm Matt Pellish from EAB.